coming in and possessing the promised land. And um, you remember that uh, in Joshua chapter 6, we find that God is uh, revealing his will and purposes to his people. And we deal with Jericho, city of fragrance, of sweet things. And um, just to put it in context, you remember uh, if you were brought up um, in any way with any Christian belief, uh, you probably uh, have sung the little song which goes that uh, till I reach this golden strand just beyond the river, and you'd have got very emotional about in the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever, till I reach the golden strand just beyond the river. Now, if it were true as it's um, concocted to be, uh, I always sing since I've reached the golden strand. Um, Because, of course, uh, we've passed from death to life. And if it were the fact that by reaching the golden strand you actually got into heaven, it would be awful to be there because there'd be a lot of enemies in the way. And you remember the first thing that God did when he met Joshua, he appeared as what? The captain of the Lord of hosts. And he came with his sword drawn in his hand to execute judgment. Now if when I get to glory I discovered that heaven was possessed by the enemies, I'd be worried. Wouldn't you? So obviously, uh, there needs to be a totally different understanding of uh, what it is to get into glory. I believe, and Scripture bears me out, that basically we're born of God and Calvary is at the point of Jordan. Let's face it, if I were one of those who wandered about in the wilderness, then I would be one of those who basically was in unbelief. And the wilderness wanderings is not for a Christian. For them should be the land of plenty. And of course, when Joshua, that great man of God, led the people over, the priests went in front, you remember, and entered into the water, Um, with the ark which speaks of the sacrifice of Christ and is a forerunner speaking of Calvary. And then you'll remember afterwards Gilgal and the circumcision. Now what I want to go on to deal with is the enemies that are within the land. Now when you're born of God your spirit becomes one spirit with God's spirit and that is sealed and eternal. Nothing can change the fact that once a person is born of God, their spirit becomes one spirit with God's spirit and it is an eternal thing. It cannot change. I would also like to point out that they always were in him before the foundation of the world. That is why they can enter in. Uh, If they weren't in him before the foundation of the world, they wouldn't have got there. But that's another story which I don't want to go into. What Basically, not at this point anyway, uh, basically what's happened is they've entered in and they've been born from above by the Spirit of God. God has quickened them and given them light. 
They've believed on Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. They've realized that salvation's totally by grace and they've taken the sacrifice of Christ. They've known the reproach of Egypt, that's the reproach of sin, rolled away as we saw in chapter 5 and they've entered in. Amen. They're in the promised land. What is the promised land? Our soul. Our soul. Jesus died to save the souls of men. He never died to save their spirits. I hope you understand that. And we purify our souls in obeying the truth. And we're to possess our own souls. We've got to learn how to possess them, the scripture tells us. And this is a beautiful picture uh, Joshua represents Jesus Christ and it's a beautiful picture of how we're to possess our souls. And the enemies we see here are enemies that are actually within our own souls. And I'm talking about after a person's been born again of God's Spirit. Not, uh, there is a saying that once you're born of God you're totally free. Well, that is a lie. Because if it were true, then how come when God said he'd given the, the land to possess it and it was theirs, that there were enemies still in it? Of course, there is a truth in it. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And once we're saved, God has done a real work in us. And then Paul goes on to say we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who worketh in you both the will and to do of his good pleasure. So there seems a paradox. God says on one side, you're all in, and on the other side, he says, work it out. And you think, well, how can that be? If I'm totally set free, what's this? Well, you're set free in your spirit to commune with God. You're brought into a relationship with God. But now you've got to learn to bring the heavenly life down to earth. And you've got to learn to live it. To be spiritual is to be natural. To be natural is not to be spiritual. That is a totally different thing. But to be spiritual is to be natural. Uh, uh, naturalness is not spirituality, it's sin. But to be spiritual is to be natural. You see, the only natural person that ever lived was Jesus Christ. Prior to Adam's fall, Adam fell, of course, but he was natural before that with Eve. And then Jesus was the only natural, normal man that ever lived. And God wants to bring us back into the image of his Son. And he wants to conform us to that image, which is normality. Everything else is just a perversion. And so he wants to bring us back into the kingdom of his dear son. And we read then in, um, in uh, chapter 6 of Joshua and uh, verse 1. Now, and you'll notice it was after the captain of the Lord of hosts had appeared. Uh, he says, now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went in, and none came out. And the Lord said unto Joshua, 
See, I have given into thine hand Jericho, and the king thereof, and the mighty men of valor. Glory to God. God says to Joshua, I have given you Jericho. Amen. Now that must have been wonderful because you remember back in chapter 5, Joshua was looking out at Jericho and I've been across to Israel and if you go there, you'll discover that you could on the top of the walls of Jericho drive two chariots side by side round the top of the walls. Now who'd want to do that at a risky height? I don't know. Uh, maybe they were better at the highway code. But anyway, you could drive two chariots round with a full set of horses round the top of Jericho. I don't guess they drove them different ways, but they said you could side by side. It was a wide wall. In fact, it was so wide that people built their houses. And you, when you go there, you can see the remains of the walls of Jericho. Um, in the sense it's, it's knocked down flat. But um, people have dug holes in the ground and have found stones, put them all together, and then you look down this hole and they say that's the walls of Jericho. Whether it is or not, who knows? But it doesn't look as wide as two chariots going around, or if they were, they were thin chariots and thin horses. Um, but there we are. When we went there, we saw it. Now, Jericho was a place and the walls were high. And God said to Joshua, I have given into thine hand Jericho, and the king thereof, and the mighty men of valor. Now, of course, you remember symbolically when it talks in the Old Testament of kings, especially kings of the heathens who were against God, it's pictorial of the spiritual powers. And you'll know that there are thrones, dominions, and ruling spirits that we wrestle against. Says Paul says in uh, the... Um, uh, gone out of my mind for we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities powers and the rulers of darkness in high places um, now it's not flesh and blood we're wrestling against uh, the devil uses people and they are flesh and blood but what we're wrestling against is principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness in high places and this is a picture of those now you'll remember that we talked last time the strongholds of Satan are where? In the mind. And your soul is made up of your mind and your volition and your emotions. And basically the big bondages which lock up your emotional being and lock up uh, your volition all occur in the mind. It's in the mind where Satan roots his strongholds. And Paul said that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the things that are built up in our minds, the strongholds of Satan, to the pulling down of the strongholds of Satan that are in the mind. And the preaching of the Word is basically brought to bring down the strongholds of Satan. Now Jericho is a type of stronghold. And God said, I'm going to give you the king of that stronghold and the mighty men of valor. I've delivered it into your hand. And when God speaks, 
he gives us the victory. Now the apparent contradiction is when God speaks a word to your heart that gives you the victory, the victory isn't there. You find that in reality when Joshua could have looked over his shoulders and looked at Jericho, the walls were still standing. The enemy was still all around the top. The gates were still very shut up fast against them. And yet God had spoken a word and said, I've given it to you. Now that is one of the biggest contradictions in spiritual terms you'll discover. God will often say to you, I've set you free. Oh, hallelujah, Lord, that's wonderful. And after you stop praising God, you suddenly see, ah, the walls are still there. Look, the king's still in his castle. Hey, the men of valor are still there, and you told me you'd given it to me. Now, that's one attitude to take. Or the other attitude to take is the one Joshua took. Um, look, let's read on, you see. Um, and uh, God says, And you shall compass the city, all you men of war, and go round about the city once. Thus shalt thou do six days. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day you shall compass the city seven times. And the priests shall blow with the trumpets. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn and when you hear the sound of the trumpet all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city shall fall down flat and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. Amen. Now God said I've given the city into your hand. Then he tells them to do something. And he says, right, I've given the city into your hand. Now you've got to get up and you've got to march around the walls of that city once. Every day for six days and on the seventh day you go around seven times. Can you imagine, Joshua? I can imagine some of you. Now look here, Lord. You don't understand. Six days walking around that place. Look, wouldn't it be more useful if I built a few ladders to get up it? Wouldn't it be more useful if you want the walls to fall down? What I'll do is I'll build a few catapults to sling stones at it and I'll, I could secretly undermine the walls of it. I mean, you know, I mean, just marching around. Ah, <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> Blowing ram's horns. Wouldn't it be better to use pea shooters? It might knock a stone or two free. Uh, Lord, you don't really mean that, do you? I mean, it doesn't bear any relation to what we want to accomplish. You say, walk round the walls. But what we want to do, we want the walls to fall down. Now, why spend all that energy marching round a big city when we could do something constructive. 
I mean, wouldn't it be far better, Lord, if we did something that was really constructive to accomplish our ends? And that's how most people think. In other words, what they do is God gives them some promise and then in their natural mind they try and work out how to get the promise fulfilled. Now God, that the glory might be of God and that all men might see that it's God who does things, asks us to do something ridiculous. I mean, what is more ridiculous than standing in a meeting room when your enemies rage against you and singing high praises to God and believing in your heart that while you're doing it, he binds their kings with chains of iron and their servants with fetters and sets you free. I mean, what, what does singing do? What does high praise do that it can accomplish that? Well, it does nothing. But it shows obedience. And you see, God says, I'll do it. But what he wants when he does it is us to obey him. And that's one of the great mysteries. You see, God didn't need the help of the children of Israel at all. What he wanted to find out is whether they were prepared to do what he said. God always gives liberty on condition. There is no such thing as unconditional liberty unconditional victory God always says I'll do this providing you do that now what we like is to lay hold of the first part most of us if we'd heard God say um, see I've given Jericho into thy hand the king thereof and the mighty men of valor we wouldn't have waited for any more we'd have run straight to the gate, we'd have banged on it with our fist and we'd say, open up, God said you've had it. Now, I don't think it would have impressed the people inside, but we could say, well, I had a word of the Lord, the Lord said it, I believe it. And you'd be right. But you see, what you have to do is wait till you find the instructions of the method that God wants to use. Too many of us get a word from God or a promise of God and before we find out the way God wants to do something, we march off claiming the victory. Of course, we don't get the victory because the way God wants to bring the victory about isn't natural. It's not the human way. In fact, it's totally perverse when it comes to humanity. It is ridiculous. And always when he wanted to do something, he told them to do ridiculous things. And that's the great mystery. That's the wonder of it all. When God moves, he wants everyone to know that it's him who's done it. Therefore, he might tell you to do something ridiculous. But that's what you've got to do. You have to do it because he said so now let me make it plain God doesn't make an exhibition of you although it would have appeared an exhibition can you imagine the people on the top of the walls of Jericho seeing the children of Israel trudging round in the midday heat with the priest blowing the trumpets in front and all the people walking silently behind 
and they're carrying this heavy ark. And the people murmuring at the top of the walls, they'll wear themselves out. They're mad. Look at them. What do they think they're doing? Surveying the plot? You know, they're crazy. How do they think that's going to beat us? It was illogical. It was irrational. And yet God said, do it. And this is one of the mysteries of God's working. God never moves in the way that humanity would like him to move. He moves how he wants to move. Now, when he comes to deliver your soul, he won't do it the polite way. I've heard it said so often by charismatics, and it's a total lie, uh, in the way that it's put over. They say God is a gentleman. Gentleman. He, he will not ever force you. I want to tell you that's totally a lie of the devil. God is not a gentleman. Because uh, what man considers good manners, God most certainly takes no notice of. God does not in any way consider our etiquette, our values, our social values, or our snobbish values of any value at all. In fact, he totally disdains them. And he finds them quite ridiculous. And therefore, he has a way of coming down and violating every principle that we hold dear. And he won't behave like a gentleman. I remember a story of Earl Pickett. Um, he was a dear man, one of the men who led me to God with Demas Shikarian. I remember going to the hotel and listening to his story. He was a millionaire and uh, a Cadillac um, owner. He had a beautiful, big, white, new Cadillac. And he used to wear immaculate white suits, always. Immaculate white ties, white shoes, white everything, and a gold tie, big gold cufflinks, big gold watch, big gold rings, gold door handles on his Cadillac, and gold bobbins on the front of it and a uh, gold cigarette case and gold this and gold that and he was really kind of one of those men he liked himself and yet he became ill and he'd got a, a form I think it was of either I think it was blood cancer and he knew he'd got six months to live and uh, someone heard about this, a businessman, and he said to Earl, he said, well, look, come along, he said, I want you to come to a meeting, Christian meeting, and people will pray for you and you'll get healed. And he said, well, what type of meeting is it? He said, well, it's Christian businessman. And he just rubbed his hands with glee because he always found that Christian businessmen were suckers. You could pull one over on them any time. And so he went along there thinking he could work a few good deals out, get some business and probably fleece them. And that was his intention of going. And his own intention. And I heard it out of his own mouth and I believe him. And so he drove up in his white Cadillac, parked it with its gold door handles outside the hotel 
And he brazened himself in and sat down at a table with his friend near the front. Uh, and he started, they started by having dinner and he worked out one or two really fast deals over dinner. And he felt, you know, it had been worthwhile wasting the time coming to this dinner and playing whatever it was, I suppose $5, $10. Over there, that's about the price of a dinner now. And this was a luxury dinner, and he he sat there, and he was really gloating, thinking how he'd conned these businessmen. And, you know, shucks, they brought me here to convert me, and boy, have I fleeced them. (laughs) And he was eating his ice cream and enjoying the joke. Uh, When someone got up and said a prayer, and then someone got up to testify and began to speak, And Earl's own comment to me was, he said, all of a sudden, he said, a great power came upon me, crashed me down off my chair and threw me on the floor. And he said, I began to roll on the floor, roaring out, my God, my God, have mercy, in front of about, I don't know, he said, about 800 businessmen there. And he did that for about 25 minutes, bellowing out. After 25 minutes, he got up totally healed physically, totally changed spiritually. And he said as he stood to his feet, he looked at himself and he was filthy from head to foot. His immaculate white suit had swept the carpet. And oh boy... He rolled over and over, and he was just one big mess. He got the hint. God didn't want him to have a flashy Cadillac and immaculate white suit any longer, and he didn't want him to rook these Christians. He met him. Now that is God being a gentleman. That is how to be gentlemanly. So don't ever let anyone deceive you with the Holy Ghost is always a gentleman. And believe in your natural, oh, well, that's the way it is. Because God's not a bit like that. Never has been. Why, Herod stood up and made a great declamation one day and he didn't give the glory to God and people all cried out, it's God. So do you know what happened? He fell down dead and was eaten with worms. Eaten alive with worms in front of everyone. That wasn't very gentlemanly, was it? It says so in Acts. Acts of the Apostles. Ananias and Sapphira came in and told lies to the Holy Ghost. Got wound up and buried. They wound up everything there. And that was the end of it. Jesus went in and overturned the money changers' tables and set everything in tumult? Absolutely gentlemanly. Why stood up and called the Pharisees whited sepulchres full of dead men's bones? God never has been a gentleman. And he never will be, thank God. For if he were, I'd never make it into the kingdom of God. I'll never be one. And I don't want to be one. I don't want to have a plum in my mouth. And I don't want to have to stand on the niceties of the world, which are hypocrisy. 
How obnoxious it is when people come up and say, how nice to see you. They don't mean a bit of it. They're trying to be gentlemanly. Liars, hypocrites. You know, I'm very careful who I shake hands with. Don't offer my hand to anyone. And I don't like saying things I don't mean. And we have to realize that God's that way. God's real. If you don't like it, you have to lump it. And if you're going to be very proud and arrogant, one day he'll swipe you off your chair and fix you. And that's the truth of it. Say, oh Lord, do it quietly. Boom! Thank you, Lord. I knew you weren't a gentleman. Uh, now... But you'll only know when you get up, you, you don't think that's right. That's the way God is. God does not act according to our etiquette. He's never read a book on it. He gave us a book, but it talks about his etiquette. And if you read the Bible, you'll discover God works in different ways than ours. I mean, can you imagine... I don't want to uh, soil your sensitive little minds. But can you imagine? There's a prophet told to lie on one, on one side naked outside the city and eat his own excretion. How many of you would say he was a man of God? There's another prophet told to go and marry a prostitute. Well, God doesn't understand the ways of people. There's another man. You know, God told them to do outrageous things, didn't he? Hmm? And I'm not suggesting you start doing it. Not unless God tells you. Told Ezekiel, he said, dig a hole through the wall of your house. Take your goods out that way. I mean, if you started doing that, people would think you'd gone funny. I mean, what's wrong with his front door? Has he lost the key? Why didn't he go out the window digging a hole through the wall, big show off? I, I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. But that was God's way of dealing with something. Now, what we don't like in our humanity, we don't like God's methods. Because God's methods always violate our minds. That's why you can't be a legalistic Christian. You can be legalistic, but not a Christian. You can be very good-mannered and middle-class, but not a Christian. Because God chooses the things that are not, and the vile things, thank God, to offend the things that are. He likes to take the base things of this world to confound the beautiful you. He likes to take the things that are nice and rub them in the dust. Oh, Pickett was glad that that was the way God dealt with him right at the start because he saw a lot of other people struggling to get that thing dealt with in them a long time afterwards. He had it dealt with right off right off his chair how gentlemanly how sweet and good natured huh? 
And that's the way God works. He will not let us away with things. He wants to move in our lives and our hearts. But boy, you've got some shock coming to you. He'll zap you one day and you are going to make a big exhibition of yourself. I've heard people say, now the Holy Spirit, he won't do anything that will embarrass you. I think old Pickett was embarrassed. But he didn't care. And there's a time when you just don't care. There's a time in a meeting when you can weep, you can cry, you can sing. People can sit there critical, leave them to it. You know, you stand or fall before God. Let their wicked, evil hearts do what they will. God will zap them in time. He's got his ways and means. Just to love him and enjoy him. And people say, well, you're crazy. Of course we are. We accept that. But we do it because he tells us to. That's the only reason we praise him. He tells us to do things that are so peculiar that they violate all intelligence or what man would call intelligence. I mean, how can you bind kings by singing? How can you get walls to fall down by walking round them? You can't, can you? You just can't. There is no way that you can accomplish things how can you change a world by praying? You imagine Elijah gets down, having slaughtered the people of Baal, you know? What was it, 400 of them, he chopped their heads off, didn't he? And after all that energetic, he goes up with his servant to pray, and he kneels down and prays, and he sends him off. Do you see anything? No. So he gets down and prays again. Do you see anything? Oh. And then he sends him. Comes back and see a cloud. As little as a human hand. So he says, right, run and tell the king to make haste. Get back to the city before the rains come. The servant didn't say, now just a minute. <laughs> I said, a cloud as little as a human hand. I mean, you know, it's a long way off. He just raced along, told the king, get back. And the king started to make haste. And the rains came. Hmm? Now, it's absurd to just think you can change the natural by praying. But you can. Of course, the secret was that he cleansed the land of the false um, priests. And then he began to pray. And God did a wonderful miracle. And we have to understand that God uses methods that aren't man's methods. And he gives us a calling that is a strange calling. And he wants to deal with things in his way. Um, if you look uh, in, uh, let's see, where we'll go. In Joshua chapter 3, uh, Joshua 6 rather, verse 3, 
and you shall compass the city, all you men of war, and go round about the city once, and thou shalt do six, thou shalt do six days. Now, one thing I want to say is that fatalism would say, okay, well, God said it. He said he'd do it. I believe him. Lord, I believe your word. Lord, I believe your word. Lord, I believe your word. And God says, now get up and go around. And say, Lord, I believe your word. I'm standing on your promise. Lord, I believe your word. That's how most Christians today, that's the uh, way that they, they teach people. Stand on the word and believe it and it'll work. After Keep claiming the promise. It doesn't work. See, God has made conditions, always. Things he says are conditional. He tells us the way, what we have to do. He says, draw nigh to me, I'll draw nigh to you. If you don't draw nigh to God, he won't draw nigh to you. You can say, I believe your word. You said you'd draw nigh to us. Yeah, but he said first we've got to draw nigh to him. I believe your word. You said you'd cleanse me from all unrighteousness. He did if we confess our sin. I believe he's made me holy. Only if we confess our sin and repent. I believe we can be like him as he is in this world. So am I. But he also says before that, if we walk in the light, as he's in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. His blood will only cleanse me if I walk in the light as Christ is in the light. See, everything's conditional in God. We've tended to take verses out of context and string them together in the evangelical mold and you get the whole impression thereby that you can come into salvation un on a total lie, unconditional. Everything's conditional. The promise was unconditional. God said, I have given it into your hand. That was truth. God said it. Then he said, now you shall do something. Because I've given it into your hand, you've got to do something. Now Christ has won a total victory on Calvary's cross. Everyone agree with that? Amen? The enemy has been defeated. Satan's been defeated, hasn't he? Amen? Jesus is risen from the dead. We're seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, because God said that, he expects us to do something. We've got to begin to liberate our souls and we've got to begin to purify our souls in obeying the truth and we've got to begin to deal with the enemies within our souls and the kings. What we like is to take the promises and forget our responsibility. It's called fatalism. You sanctify yourself in obeying the truth. We like to believe what God says, appropriate it without doing anything. God has done it. It's God's work. But he's left it conditional. And he left it conditional to these. He said, right, you've got to go around the walls. And... He didn't use man's methods. It was God's way of doing it. I mean, God's way was for Jesus Christ to be crucified on Calvary's cross. That was the way he dealt with his enemies. Our way would have been to call ten legions of angels and wipe the lot of them out, wouldn't it? 
God's way was for Jesus to die on Calvary. Our way would have been when they said, okay, if you're the son of God, get down and prove it. Save yourself. We'd have stepped off the cross and say, see, buster? Wouldn't we? Now you know. And then we'd have zapped them. Dead, there and then, and fried them to a chicken. I mean, we would, wouldn't we? Wouldn't you if you had that power? That's why God didn't give it you. <laughs> I remember someone preaching that and saying, you know, he said, when Jesus, his greatest temptation was when someone said, Jesus, if you're who you say you are, get down off the cross. And God said to me, you know, son, if that had been you, you'd have got down, wouldn't you? I said, yeah, far I would. <laughs> and he said, that's why I've never trusted you with that. I said, thank God. You see, God knows our human frailty. Therefore, he used the Christ man, both man and God. And he went through it. Now, I'm not saying at some point you might not be in such a fit state and God will mature you and transform you that you would be prepared to hang on the cross even though you had the authority to get off. May God give us the grace if that time should ever come. But I know my own propensity. And I guess if you're honest, you should know yours. Uh, sufficient for the day is the evil thereof. And his grace is sufficient, just about, for what I've got at the moment, not for what I might have to face in the future. So I never worry about the future because I can't stop it coming, I can't change it, and I can't do anything about it. What I can do is live day by day. Amen? That's all I can do. And anyway, there he was, giving them a command. I hope you're not one of these people that think, if I had hung on the cross, I'd have hung there. I wouldn't have done that. I'd have been obedient fully for you. Sanctimonious. And he said in verse 4, seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. Now this is the bit I like. This was put in for me. Uh, now you remember, of course, or probably you won't, but I'll remind you if I rolled it down. Yeah. Um, if you remember, uh, back in Numbers, uh, it was in Numbers 10, verses 1 to 10. You needn't turn to it. We're not going there. But most of the use of the trumpet was silver trumpets. Do you remember? They had silver trumpets made, and we did a series on the silver trumpets maybe a year and a half ago. And um, when they pitched camp, took up camp, the silver trumpets were to be blown. Do you all remember that? Well, here... Now, ram's horns were the most mean, ugly things and they make an awful noise when they're blown. I don't know if you've heard a ram's horn. I have. I went to a synagogue and the rabbi blew the ram's horn for me. Always wondered what one sounded like, so I got the rabbi to give a blow because they always have one in the synagogue. So if you ever want to hear one, go and see the local rabbi and ask him to blow his horn. And this guy, they have... It's for their feast, you see. Uh, and that's it. Lorraine, you've heard a ram's horn blow, haven't you? It's a funny old sound, isn't it? Boop. Um, it really is. 
And you see, why did he not say, because they had the silver trumpets, march round with the silver trumpets? He chose the meanest of instruments. The most, what I would call, bass-sounding instrument. Literally. Sounds in a bass note. The reason for that was God wanted to show that it was nothing to do with the instruments that were used. It was to do with him. If he'd chosen the silver trumpets, they'd have probably worshipped him. But who's going to worship a dirty old ram's horn that makes an awful noise? No one. And so they blew the ram's horns and um, they used them. And it's interesting to notice that uh, the ram's horn was always used in battle. Uh, in this place, when God commanded them, he got them to blow the ram's horns. And it speaks of the type of preacher. Do you know the trumpet? We'll just go and look at a few scriptures just to put it in context first. But if you turn to Isaiah chapter 58, Isaiah 58 Okay, Isaiah 58 verse 1 Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgression, and the house of Jacob, their sins. Now God associated voice and trumpet. Jeremiah chapter 6. Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 17. Also I set watchmen over you, saying, Hearken to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not hearken. Interesting, isn't it? God set watchmen and God sets watchmen in the church. And they blow the sound of the trumpet. They warn people. And there are people who will not listen. You can tell them the truth and they won't listen. They are determined not to listen. They have no intention ever of listening. All they want to do is go their own way. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, just in case you think it's only Old Testament, wouldn't want anyone to dodge out on that issue. And in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 
Uh, well, let's take verse 6. Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you except I speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine? Even things without life, giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harp? For if the trumpet... trumpets for preparing the battle and you see one of the things that God does is he gets a preacher to declare against sin and against the things that people are doing and that's so that you can be prepared to battle and it comes as a sound of a trumpet now God uses rude and base things for his trumpets turn to Joel as well let's go to Joel chapter 2 Joel chapter 2 Blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain that all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord cometh for it is nigh at hand and so it goes on with a great prophecy and always the sound of the trumpet in Zion is important. Sound of preaching, the sound of the voice of him that brings good tidings and also proclaims the day of the wrath of God and vengeance upon the heathen. Now those two voices must be heard in every church. Sound of the trumpet and it's for blowing alarm. And you might say, well, why? What's the purpose in a trumpet? What's so important? Why did God say, get the priest to carry the trumpets? Now notice the people didn't have to carry them, it was the priests. And the priests speak of the ministers, and there were seven. And it's interesting to note that in Revelation you've got the seven churches. Uh, say unto the Spirit, you know, of the seven churches. The Spirit of the church of so-and-so the angel of the church at so-and-so, and it speaks to the angels of the churches. And the thing that we have to understand is God chooses people who are basically base. God does not choose the silvered trumpet. He doesn't choose the nice, well-educated, well-spoken to proclaim his gospel. Luther, Martin Luther, for instance, you'll realize, was a miner's son. He wasn't educated, became a monk and sought education, but basically he was an uneducated man and a miner's son. Martin Luther. Uh, think of, uh, who else should we think of? Uh, Bunyan. Bunyan was a tinker. And yet he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which was probably read, translated into more uh, languages and read by more people in the world than any other book, Pilgrim's Progress, through the years, except the Bible, of course. Tremendous book. 
and um, greatly used of God. Yet he was just a simple tinker. Spurgeon, one of the finest preachers that ever lived, he never went to theological college, never went to seminary, never did anything in, in education, and yet God used him tremendously. God takes the things that are not. He takes the base things. And he puts them there so people can stumble over them. Do you know, he leaves in preachers things that if people don't like it, they'll stumble. For instance, Spurgeon was recorded of him one day. When he was going on a train, he was going up, I think, to Keswick. And he got on this train and eight other preachers got in the carriage. And as there was a custom in that day, uh, tobacco had become a popular thing, and all these preachers began to get out a cigarette paper and start rolling their own and making cigarettes. And Spurgeon just sat there with his arms folded, looking at them. And they all started lighting up their cigarettes and puffing away, and Spurgeon just looked at them with disdain. And he said, Gentlemen... Do you think it's right for a minister of God to smoke? And immediately they threw their cigarettes onto the floor and stamped them out. And there was silence in the carriageway, a kind of uneasy silence. And he sat there for a few minutes, put his hand in his pocket, pulled out a pipe, put it in his mouth and proceeded to light it and said, I do. Now, it would stumble many people today. He was a rude and base man. Why, one day he heard a preacher at Keswick preaching on holiness and proclaiming that Jesus Christ had set him free from everything. You know, he was a king's son. Usually kind of thing you hear today by people who, you know, we've got the victory, the devil's defeated, we're this, we're that, we're the other. So he waited and uh, let the man, young man, go on. And the next morning Spurgeon came down to breakfast and young man was already up, of course, because he'd got the victory, and was sitting there eating his porridge. And so Spurgeon walked over to where this young man was sitting, looked at him, picked up a jug full of milk and poured it over his head. Needless to say, the young man was somewhat disturbed and his holiness vanished. (laughs) And he leapt to his feet in a rage and let out one or two cries of dismay. And Spurgeon looked at him and said, See, I knew no one could be that perfect. (laughs) Now, that was Spurgeon. You see, God uses ram's horns. He doesn't use what you'd like. He chooses what he'd like. He chooses the base things. Now, the horn doesn't do anything. The sound that comes out doesn't do anything. It's the foolishness of preaching that God uses to convert. It's not the preacher. That's why Paul complained. Some say I'm Paul. Some say I'm of Apollos. Some say I'm of Cephas. He said, you're of you're not. Don't you know him that planteth isn't anything, neither him that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. A preacher doesn't matter that much. 
The vehicle doesn't matter to God. That's why he chooses the base things. Because if he chose the nice things, then people would look to the person. So he chooses the things that aren't. And that's the wonder of it all. He chooses the ugly. He chooses those that are the casts off, the have-nots, the do-nots, and the won't-nots, and the what-nots. And he chooses the lot, and he says, right, that's it. They're the trumpeters. They're the people that blow the trumpet. It's through them my word's going to come. And people say, well, who are they? They have no right. Of course they haven't. A ram's horns for a ram's head, isn't it? And yet, there it was, boo, making a horrible noise and all the people marching silently behind. I mean, couldn't they have had Beethoven's symphony? Or at least a violin? No, they had to listen to this noise going on in front of them. Could you imagine walking around that city all day? I, I, you should go and hear a ram's horn blow and it would make it more pictorial for you um, but there you are God chooses and the trumpeter that's the amazing thing with God his methods are so ludicrous what use is a trumpet what use is preaching of people it's useless unless God's in it and God says that he'll cause the foolishness of preaching to be the instrument that deals with people. And that's what always amazes me. You go and you preach and you think, well, I don't know, Lord. And people don't listen. Half the people never listen to what you say. You go back and you preach again and, and some still don't listen. And you go back, you preach again and some don't listen. And go back and you preach again. And then one day you see some of those that don't listen, suddenly God in his grace and his mercy quickens them. And you think now, and they come to you and tell you, oh, you know, God showed me this. Oh, it was wonderful. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they realize what God really wanted to do in their hearts all the time. And, you know, they only just realized it. And they say to you, why didn't you preach that years ago? If only you'd told me that. You think, but I've been doing it. And you tell them. And they say, ah, oh, yeah, but you never said it that way. What way? Well, the way that suddenly caused God to send an arrow to the heart. And that's the secret. God just chooses to wing a word in when he wants to. But I have to be faithful, warn people, blow the trumpet, and it's unpleasant. A trumpet, a ram's horn's a nasty sound. It's not a pleasant sound. It's not nice to the ears. And it's not nice to the sensibilities. And when you preach, often you'll challenge people and they'll get uncomfortable and they'll feel you're getting at them, and you are. And they're quite right. And you, they feel you're directing your comments towards them, and I most certainly do. And I want to tell you, I always try and get at you. If I see you in here, I'll try and get at you my purpose understand it 
I wouldn't be a preacher if I didn't believe in that. I'd get at you if I see that there are things in your life that aren't right with the Word of God. I'm going to get at you. That's what I'm called to do. I'm called to sound the trumpet. Now, you don't want to listen? Well, that's your problem. But my duty is to clear your blood be on your own head. I'll preach faithfully. That's why the trumpets are there, the old ram's horns. Around they go with a priest, blowing them. Terrible noise it is. All day long, seven days. You'd have think at the end of seven days the people in Jericho would have surrendered. (laughs) I can't listen to that any longer. But we'll go on with that tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee that your word is truth. Open our eyes, O God, to see that though you've given us the land to inherit it, yet we've got to find your ways of possessing our souls. Your ways of bringing deliverance, O God, your ways of dealing with the kingdoms and the kings that are within our hearts. Lord, your way of pulling down the strongholds of Satan, the way of setting us free, Oh God, quicken your word to our heart. Give us illumination to see what you're about. Lord, teach us, we pray. Lord, let your spirit work in our hearts. We thank you that you've been so gracious to visit us and bless us. Lord, and we pray that you'll ever keep us sensitive to your wounds. In Jesus' name, amen.